Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from Four Oaks, North Carolina. As my family and I continue our journey around the country, I found out that Four Oaks has a population of 1,921 as of the 2010 census. That's not why I'm here. I'm here because it had a pretty good service zone and I'm on the move today. And, and I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome my friend and our guest, Carolyn Chang, who serves as the vice president of community, community and Product Engagement at UC Innovation, and also president and co-founder of the Cat's Meow Transport Service. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised you remembered about the, uh, the nonprofit. We're on hold right now because of COVID, but so we have well, not been transporting any cats. <laughs> your, your cat uh, smuggling side hustle is something we're definitely going to talk about, uh, but we also have lots more to cover. And uh, I have known you for some time. When I think about people that have really played an important role on our entrepreneurial journey at Evertrue, you're right there uh, at the top of the list. And uh, at the same time, what I've learned in, in doing these podcasts is uh, that I've inevitably, uh, inevitably learned new things, even about people that I've known for a long time. <laughs> And one of the ways that I've been introducing our recent guests uh, is by asking them to start by thinking back to their own college journey and to go back in time to the person who was a junior in high school, to that Carolyn, who was starting to think about what your higher ed experience might be. Um, who was she? What was she into? Was she into cats and knitting back then or was it a different person? And how did you end up going to Stanford University? Uh, so I am the youngest of four of a you know Chinese American family, and if you know anything about Asian American families, uh, education is incredibly important. Um, it was never discussed whether I would go to college, but where I would go to college. Um, and in my family, it was also that it had to be one of the top, quote unquote, top notch universities. Um, so you know, junior year, thinking about where I should go, it was you know. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, but um, you know, I, I uh, oddly enough, I we had just moved three years prior from Connecticut, where I you know spent uh, eleven years, um, to California right before I started high school, and I had I remember going over the list of schools with my mom, and I said to her, you know, I really want to apply to Princeton to see if I can get in, because I you know liked you know, what Princeton had to offer, and she goes, you know, you're not going to go even if you get in, so don't bother spending the fifty bucks. It was only 50 bucks back then too, but to us, 50 bucks was a lot of money. So she said, nope, you know, and you're not even going to go. So, uh, you know, pretty much kept it west of the Mississippi um, and applied to some schools at the time I thought I was going to be a doctor. So I applied to a couple of programs that had a six year, um, you know, BAMD program. Um, and that was, you know, Northwestern and Wajoo St. Louis. Uh, Northwestern was appealing because my dad had gotten his um, law degree there. Um, but my sister was going to Stanford at the time. My sister, you know, she was a junior or senior. Um, and, you know, I visited her a couple of times at Stanford. And so I applied to Stanford. Um, my safety was one of the Cal schools, the UC schools. Um, and then I had another, uh, you know, Pomona was the other school that I picked a smaller, you know, liberal arts college in California. Uh, I wasn't into, I mean, I, my mom had taught me knitting, by the way, but we didn't have any pets growing up. Um, Apparently, when I was little, uh, we had a dog and the dog, you know, jumped up on me and I fell down and my mom got rid of the dog and said, no more pets. My mom didn't really like animals. So it's kind of funny that the rest of us have become a little bit more passionate about it. But uh, so, no, not into cats as much, although my sister had two cats at the time that I loved having to visit. Um, but so but the person that, you know, the junior was, you know, someone who was expected to go to college. I was, you know, near the top of my class in high school. Um, just trying to figure out where I wanted to go. When I actually got all of my the offers, um, I remember having a conversation with my sister, um, and I was always following in her footsteps. I mean, here's my sister is um, she's you know a physician, uh, you know she's you know had a perfect score on one of her SATs, just you know super smart. And I was always you know they said, oh you're you know Chris Chang's little sister, and so you know, I really wanted to go to Stanford, but I remember talking to her and I said, you know, I don't want to follow in your footsteps anymore. And she said, you know what, 
the number of people that know me at Stanford is just a handful. You're going to make your own way at Stanford. So if you really want to go there, you should go. And my mom and dad, to their credit, you know, Stanford offered the worst financial aid package. Um, they said, you go where you want, we'll make it work. Uh, we were squarely lower middle class, you know, earning, you know, we did not, you know, it, it was just not, you know, money was not, it was a problem, right? But she, they said, nope, we'll make it work one way or another. And to their credit, they did, right? I mean, I graduated with a bunch of loans, but we made it work. So I did go to Stanford and I, my path was very different from my sisters. You know, I was very much into residential education. I was an RA for two years. I worked all over campus. Um, you know, I probably at one summer I had six jobs on campus just in various areas. Uh, you know, I was a coordinator for, you know, the new student orientation. I did parents orientation. Um, you know, those things, my sister had no interest in, you know, that was not what she was into. So, and there were a few people who knew her, like um, there was, you know, someone who was a class behind her at her, you know, co-op and I, you know, met him. And so I ran into him on campus one day when I was a freshman, but that was it. I mean, nobody knew my sister and we had different majors. So, you know, that wasn't it either. Um, so, um, oh, maybe we have one French teacher in common. <laughs> that was about it. <laughs> um, and so, you kind of just go all in on the residential experience. You get yeah. super uh, involved. Um, landing a career path in advancement is very different than the joint degree programs you were pursuing uh, when you were applying to college. So when did you realize that um, maybe the medical path wasn't going to be the right thing for you? And at what point did you even start to understand that this business of fundraising and alumni development um, was a thing? Uh, so I became a little bit aware of it during when I was in school, but I would have said to you, if you interviewed me as a senior at Stanford um, and had asked me to make a gift, I would have said, no way. I've got $20,000 in loans. There's no way I can make a gift. Um, well, my first job was $18,000, right? I mean, that was my salary. So I would have said no way, right? Um, and so that's an interesting path. But the the you asked me about the medical career. So I realized it very early on, freshman year, second quarter, when I uh, did not pass uh, organic chem. <laughs> and mainly because the second midterm was the day after my birthday and I didn't study as much as I should have. <laughs> and I just, just, you know, it just wasn't for me. It was, uh, you know, at Stanford, it's very cutthroat. And I just um, it's, uh, decided no. And I still ended up majoring in something that I probably, I probably should have majored in something else, to be honest, but I wanted to avoid sophomore slump. And so I uh, went overseas sophomore year. And so that meant when I got back from overseas, I had to declare right away. And so I just declared something and I should have taken my time. Anyway, where'd you story. go over? Where'd you go overseas? Oh, so I went fall quarter to England and uh, winter quarter to France. All right. Number one favorite memory in England. Number one favorite memory in France. Number one favorite memory in England was taking a Shakespeare class from, a, you know, he became a Guggenheim scholar um, where we would read a play, analyze it, go to see the play, read a play, seven plays. Amazing. Especially the day we took off to go to Stratford-on-Avon and see Richard II and Richard III. Amazing quarter. Um, and I, I sort of came into my own academically I, I sort of figured out that I could do this, but I needed smaller classes. That was the other thing about pre-med is that all those classes were huge. Um, I needed smaller classes in order to succeed. So, you know, it took me a little while, but I figured that out. France, oh my gosh, my 19th birthday, uh, I'm, there were many of us, you know, six of us who were overseas, my friends, we all met in Grindelwald, Switzerland to go skiing on my, for my birthday. <laughs> Just an amazing memory. And so, you know, somebody from the England campus came, someone from the Italy campus came, because Stanford has campuses overseas. Um, and then a couple people from the France campus, we all went and went to, um, but also the very first day of class, I remember that the classes were taught in French. And um, I remember getting back to my room and thinking, oh my God, my head hurts. Because, you know, at the time I wasn't fluent. And so trying to translate what they were saying into English. And I knew that things were going to be okay when my notes started being in French instead of in English. <laughs> but don't do ask me to speak do, now. <laughs> do you want, I was going to say, should we do the next part of the podcast in French? <laughs> I can say a few things. I can understand when yeah. it's, it's spoken on TV or yeah. in a movie. Yeah, Fair no. enough. Fair enough. Well, 
you have gone on, for those who don't know you, you've gone on to have an incredible career, uh, really building expertise in this advancement services world. It might not have even been called that back then. Right. Um, but uh, you've served as the chair of the Case Summer Institute for Advancement Services. You've got a great network of friends. It's obviously a very tight-knit um, community. Um, when did you realize that that was an opportunity. I don't know what your first job out of college was, but ultimately you had a long career at Stanford, retired, um, and then have had a great career since. So just tell us yep. about uh, what led you uh, to that role at Stanford and what that world was uh, when you started. What was your real area of focus? Yeah, so how I got started in advancement is kind of uh, sort of the story for people in my era, which is a little bit, you know, a little bit backwards, you know, that wasn't considered necessarily a career, I would say, but it was all still something that's very important today, which is relationships. So I was working at Stanford at the time. Um, I was, an, you know, executive admin looking for something else to do with my free time. And uh, Stanford was launching a, a campaign and someone I knew said, hey, you know, we're doing a volunteer phone appeal. Would you like to come? That's how I got started. So you know, quickly rose through the volunteer ranks, you know, was the chair of the volunteer appeal. And then someone, you know, who was the director of student and young alumni development at the time that was a job at Stanford, you know, pulled me aside and said, I'm leaving Stanford. I think you should apply for my job. And I applied for the job. And, you know, I thought, okay, I'll do this for a couple of years and then I'll go get my MBA and then, you know, do something else. And uh, turned out I loved development. Um, whether it was the combination, it was probably a combination of the leadership. John Ford was an extraordinary leader as a VP. Um, my, my bosses, my mentors in development were amazing. I loved the work. Um, you know, it was going out and talking to people about giving back to Stanford, right? I mean, it was, and by then I had bought in, right? So I knew the spiel. I knew why it was important to give. Um, I was no longer that senior who said, no way I was not going to give. Um, and it was just an amazing, it was an amazing experience. And, you know, the campaign was great to be involved because there was a lot of excitement and, you know, hoopla and everything else. And I just continued on. Um, so I had a couple of roles in the annual fund, was then moved over to the medical center, I was director of annual giving for a couple of years. And we were in the middle of converting the old database, which was on a main, IBM mainframe, to uh, Lucian Advance. And, um, you know, fancy new client server technology. Um, I was a Which pilot. was not even a Lucian at that time, right? right. It was BSR Ad Advance, uh, Business right. Systems Resources. I don't even remember the name uh, because we had a different name for it, which I can't say in public. Um, so the... Uh, this is a safe place, but keep going. <laughs> um, so... I uh, was a pilot tester and I just really, really, you know, was fascinated by this. I was, you know, really engaged. And like my on, boss, a, on a personal level, were you into technology at that time or? I'm always, yeah, I've, I've always been a little bit of a nerd. I mean, okay. not necessarily going out and buying the newest thing, but fascinated by new technology um, and not afraid of it by any means. You know, I think that that's, you know, I just, I was fascinated by how this could all make it work. Um, like, even on the old mainframe, I was asking the programmers, so how do you do a search for X, Y, and Z? And so I was writing my own reports out of, you know, that terrible language that they were, we were using. Um, and they were saying, you know, you know, Carol's really learning fast. So yeah, I'm a little bit of a nerd. Um, I, I think that that's part of why I was attracted to this area. Um, but my boss at the time at the medical center was moving over to become director of operations. And she had posted a position as, you know, associate director. And part of it was helping to, move the organization forward in using, adopting the new technology. But the other part of the job was uh, managing a large group of people and that is the advancement services area, right? So it was gift processing, bio records, and at the time it was called central files. And, uh, you know, looking back at what was available at Stanford, you know, it's a large shop at the time it was, you know, three or 400 people. Um, I knew if I wanted to manage a large group of people, I'd probably have to either manage something like the annual fund or, go into major gifts and then, man, you know, manage a region. And, and, and I just, I didn't, I was not interested in major gifts and I wasn't sure I wanted to continue to manage or, I mean, to go and manage a large group of annual fund fundraisers. And so this opportunity to manage the advancement services team was, you know, something I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. I think I'm, I think I would be a good manager. Um, and so I, I did that and I, you know, I loved gift processing. It was 
it's a uh, it sort of suits my need for making things work but I could also think outside the box because Stanford had a lot of complicated gifts and so trying to figure out okay with a lot of times with the programmers okay so I have this crazy gift you know what happens if I do this what happens to the you know feed to the GL can we alter the program you know the advanced in order to take this I remember one time going into the programmer and saying we have you know a gift with uh with uh, benefit right so in quid quo quo but the benefit is $360,000 and I need you to expand the field because, you know, most- What does that mean? What do you mean the benefit? Uh, the, what the benefit received for making this gift. So it was a corporate program for the medical center. And so the, every company, Apple, whatever, made a $3 million gift and the, the benefit received was 360,000. But the, the actual field was not big enough because usually gifts and kinds are, you know, a hat for $20 or whatever. Right. And so I had to you know, run in there. I said, I've got to post these, you know, four gifts of $3 million each and I can't get the field to work. So um, anyway, so it's just things like that, that, that suited me. Um, and it, it oddly gave me access to the vice president that most people probably didn't have at Stanford. Um, there was a joke at that time it was Martin Shell. There was a joke going around that when I called Martin would answer, but not everyone. Um, and it's usually because he knew, I mean, he knew that I was only calling when I had a problem that I needed his advice on, right. That I needed some clarification or something. And he knew that I wasn't going to call him about something, you know, superfluous. It was something that had to do with a gift that we have to post or a pledge. We have Did you have like a special line? Was there no. like a bat phone to Martin <laughs> Shell that no. would get you direct? No, no. But I still have the phone number of the development legal counsel's number memorized. <laughs> Love it. Kind of crazy. Um, anyway, so uh, I, and the other part that I really liked about advanced services is that primarily my my clients were internal, so I got to know the staff really well. Um, you know, I participated in a you know one you know development one hundred and one session, and where I introduced what advancement services was to and how it operated at Stanford to new staff, and that was often one of my first clues about you know who was going to be good or who might be a problem or you know things like that. And um, so I, I really like servicing the internal clients. I mean, not to say we didn't have I didn't have people who called donors who called me. Um, I, I had a few that called me on a regular basis, um, but it was just very different than being a fundraiser. Um, it was getting to know the internal clients was great. Um, so that's how I ended up getting to know as much about advancement services as I did. Yeah. Um, so. and, and so when you think about over those years, I mean, it's your alma mater. You're mm -hmm. unbelievably passionate about it. I mean, for somebody who you know, you studied there, you worked there, and then after work, you'd go to whatever game was going on. You, I don't know how many season tickets you hold. Like, how much time were you not at Stanford? Like, it's just, I feel like some people are like, I got to leave. I'm going to go home. I'm going to unplug for the weekend. You're like, I'm going to go home for a minute, and I'm going back to Stanford. And, like, was that always your MO, or did that evolve as you got um, more and more connected with the campus? I think it probably evolved as I got more and more connected. I mean, you know, football was an easy one to get season tickets for. And, and then, you know, basketball followed short after shortly thereafter. But um, so I got to know athletics a little bit more. It's just interesting when I worked my first job at Stanford after I graduated. And so it wasn't my very first job out of school. I worked in the undergraduate advising center. And um, the, one of the things was that they would bring by potential athletes, you know, elite athletes to come, meet the advisors to talk about their academic career. Right. And um, so I would meet them and I was then became an advisor. And so I had a lot of athletes. I just got started getting connected with the athletic department. So I started going to, you know, signing up for a lot of sports. So the answer is five, by the way. Um, and it would have been more, but they made tennis non ticketed. So, <laughs> um, and we would only, we would definitely sign up for soccer, but it conflicts with the women's volleyball. So anyway, uh, it's, and, yeah, I just, I spent a lot of time on campus. I mean, I love the campus. I love the people and sports was a, I go to a lot of sports, Brent, as a release because, you know, especially in a basketball game, well, football game too. You can scream and yell like a banshee and no one <laughs> says anything about it. In fact, the louder you are, the better it is for the team. I love <laughs> except it. For the time, except for the time I got kicked out of our game. <laughs> so, well, I now I have to ask more. 
uh, I will confess I was once kicked out of a game, but it was really for just excess passion is what I would describe it as. Ditto. Fair Although enough. I might've, I might've dropped an F-bomb at the ref. All right. <laughs> <clears throat> I have to ask you then, when you think about all those years at Stanford, obviously it's an amazing community at the forefront of leadership in so many sectors. And, you know, when you're working in the development space, you're meeting a lot of those, uh, those yeah. folks in different capacities. What were some of the experiences that, you know, just like the 19th birthday party when you were studying in France, like, what are the equivalents um, during your time at Stanford when you really just felt like, wow, this is, I mean, you know, the whole thing is special, but this moment is really, really Ooh. standing out. You mean as a staff person, as a development person? Yeah, yeah. Just sort of in the development realm, when you think about experiences or events you were a oh. part of, people who you got to meet or just uh, moments that you were sort of really yeah. struck by the experience. I talk about this moment um, actually a lot to new staff at UC Innovation. Um, I, I will always remember this. So back in 1997, John Ford called an all hands meeting, which was very unusual. The all hands meeting were, were plotted out a year in advance. They always happened two weeks after the board meeting, you know, was sort of pro forma. And so for him to call a, you know, a, an all hands meeting for that afternoon was just very unusual. And we thought, okay, who died? Who's resigning? You know, that kind of level of kind of, of anxiety that actually came up. And he brought everyone together to announce the largest gift that the Hewlett Foundation had ever made. It was $400 million and it was to Stanford. And what I remember him saying, um, you know, to this day, I, I can hear him saying it, that the, this gift was the result of a long relationship that Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard had with the university, which started when he, they were students. And then he proceeded to name off um, some of the more recent, uh, you know, fundraisers who worked with them, one of which was their their fundraiser for 20 years, Daryl Pearson, whose son then became development legal counsel. I mean, it, and it so it just proved to me that it was not only relationships, but the length of the relationships that Stanford had that allowed them to be so successful in the fundraising realm. Um, and so it pains me to hear when uh, when you know there there's rapid turnover of development staff, especially on the major gift level, because to me that, yeah, you might be, as a fundraiser, you might be going to chase the, you know, the dollar or a better experience, but it's not helping the institution. And the institution needs to do a better job of selling the, the job itself to keep those relationships going. So to keep staff. So staff retention, I don't think development offices think about staff retention as an important thing, and they need to, because, you know, the, the relationships really do matter. Now it's not to say Stanford doesn't have its share of turnover, but at the very highest level, you know, those $400 million gifts, you know, that was, you know, to me, that would always, I always remember that, that it was the result of the relationship that those students had with, you know, David and Bill had with Stanford, but Stanford had with them as well. That to me was one of the most. I love that. I forget. I love that. What in all hands. Um, oh, what in all hands was right. And then, and then you, uh, what happened. Carolyn had to process that pledge, <laughs> which part was challenged. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, it was uh, it was interesting. <laughs> a lot of zeros that had to fit in the. Uh, uh, that yeah, one fit, oddly enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, and then you retired. I did. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if you want to talk about it, you can. But um, you retired, but you know. Didn't. In name only. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was a long time working for the same institution. You know, there were some changes happening that I could see. I, I, you know, I think maybe I just thought there was, I had been thinking for, you know, for a little while. I mean, I knew exactly when I could retire at Stanford. It was a combination of age and years of service. Um, and so then a former colleague of mine said, listen, we are, who was working at Santa Clara, we've done a reorganization in anticipation of a campaign. We have a new vice president. There's a job open as, you know, for AVP of advancement services. Would you be interested? And it just so happened to be you know, good timing that I was sort of thinking about, okay, it's, it, if something came along that was a good move, then I could retire and, and go. And so I didn't have to move my, you know, move across country or anything. It was in my backyard sort of a little bit longer commute than Stanford um, and it, smaller shop, which uh, I had never experienced. 
Um, it was an alma mater also, because I got my MBA from Santa Clara. So that also helped. Um, and so I just, so I took a chance and, and was, and that's what I did. Um, you know, smaller shop, I had a larger portfolio. So instead of just, you know, get processing and records and files, I had prospect management, I had donor, um, donor relations, and then to throw in other things, I had facilities, budget, and uh, HR. So uh, just a little bit of everything, you know, basically all the support services for university relations um, for the, the development office. Um, and that's actually when you and I met, right, Liz? And um, that is when you and I met, which is still <laughs> one of my most poignant memories on this entire journey. Uh, Carol, uh, Carolyn and... Um, approached me at a vendor booth in, uh, where were Nashville. we? DC? Nash Nashville. 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 It was the Blackboard annual conference, BBCon. And, um, and I was standing there in my booth with my colored pants and our, you know, brochures and Carolyn walked up to me and it was, uh, one of the most assertive vendor booth conversations <laughs> I ever had. She said something along the lines of, so what do you do? <laughs> not hi, not hello. Not will you give me a check mark on my, you know, vendor bingo card, a card bingo to, card, <laughs> you know, vendor bingo. It was, what do you do? And I don't remember what I said, but uh, she listened to me. She listened to my spiel and abruptly walked away. And then uh, she came back. No, I think I, I texted know, 10, you. Yeah, right. Got asked for the mobile number, uh, texted me. And then we got back together along with her colleague, Julie. Right. Yep. And um, and we just started talking about our world and, and the point of view that we thought there was a really big disconnect at that time between traditional database systems and the digital web. And uh, yeah. I think it's all starting to make sense to me now, as you described, uh, even your interest in BSR advance and learning to program back then that you were um, very active and engaged on various social media platforms. And this was in probably 2014, 2015. So relatively early in our uh, journey at, yeah. at Evertrue. And, um, and I, I don't think you were walking the floor that day, really looking to buy new products, but there was something about our conversation that did, you know, spark your interest. And obviously you went on to, you know, become a, a great friend and um, uh, just, you've provided us countless hours of feedback um, over the years. You've helped us with Blackboard, Salesforce, Advance. I mean, you're one of the few people that really has experience with all of those kind of main platforms. But when you think back, that's my version of the story. And then I think there was a, you know, night out in Nashville and uh, Quite a bit. got to hang with some, you know, mutual friends there. But um, what, so I, uh, yeah, yeah, I will give what you, do you credit. Think back to? We're going to give credit to where credit's due. So Chris Cannon, um, and, you know, and I've known Chris for years, uh, actually mentioned, he said, you know, you should check out these Evertrue people at BBCon. And so when we, when Julie and I walked by, we were walking the floor, getting our little bingo cards done. We walked by and, and so we walked back. I don't know if you knew that we walked by, you know, smiled, whatever. And, we, and then we walked back. Cause I said, you know what, you know, Chris Cannon said that we should check these guys out. And that's why I was also sort of maybe super aggressive because it's like, I don't care about all this fluff. I want to know what you do because you're, you've been recommended by someone I trust. So what is it that you do? So that's that's how we got started. And I remember sitting with, so we left abruptly because we wanted to go to a session. So Julie and I are sitting in this session and I'm thinking about what you said and what you started to say. And and we had, uh, in, we had already purchased something else, uh, a little bit different. It had to do that's more right. with, with gamification. Yeah. So I turned to Julie and I said, why couldn't we get both? You know, and she goes, we should. It, it does different things. And I went, OK. And that's when I text you to say, OK, we want a more in-depth demo. And that's what you did. And so 45 minutes later, you're sitting there with us giving us a better demo. That's so right. that's how that's that's my version. And then there that's was a right. late, night, late night in Nashville where I might have lost my sweater and introduced somebody to. <laughs> and we've gone on. <laughs> We've gone on, uh, you know, that was uh, an opportunity where we did get to partner at Santa Clara. And yep. I think you were really an early believer in the idea that if you can connect uh, digital engagement signals and infer interest by way of um, social media, which was a real core area of focus at that time, but also connected to all that rich data that does live in these traditional systems that you've worked hard to engineer to make sure yep. you can fit the right number of zeros and so forth, that there'd be an opportunity. And we were 
you know, the product was very early at that time. Um, but it, it was it was really such, validating. Yeah, yeah, still such amazing information, especially for our research folks, you know, right. in areas that we would never have any visibility in. I mean, I think that was the the value there, and then overlaying that to with um, you know just a better UI. I've always been a fan of your UI. Yeah, and and ultimately we learned a lot during those years. Um, but you've had new opportunities uh, that have emerged. You had, you know, challenges that you went through, obviously, personally as well. Um, but, uh, but kind of, you know, as you reflect on making this recent, you know, more, most recent career move, um, and as you think about, you know, what, what got you excited, uh, you do have a lot of experience uh, with the different platforms. And, and I don't want to go too in-depth in any of that, but um, when did you sort of first get exposed to UC Innovation and, um, was it sort of an immediate connection, uh, or, or was it a, you know, more drawn out, um, kind of, uh, process, if you will? Uh, so once it happened, it was fast, but I will, what you all will notice is that I have not been in terrible, I have not been terribly intentional about my career. I've taken opportunities when they've come across. So actually one of my mentors used to say, take your cookies when they're passed. Um, and so the Santa Clara thing was a cookie for me, right? It was an opportunity to work closer with the president and the board and, you know, bigger, bigger portfolio. Um, but, uh, you know, what you referenced was uh, I actually you know, was diagnosed with breast cancer as we were doing our conversion from Razor's Edge to Blackboard CRM. And, um, you know, shortly after we went live, I just decided I needed to take some time off. So I took, you know, left Santa Clara, took six months off. I would recommend that for anyone, just like you're recommending the RV life for anyone. Uh, I would recommend, you know, if you need it to take some self-care and take some time off. It was the best thing I ever did. Um, and then I, I happened to sign on with a small management consulting firm, a boutique management consulting firm out of Chicago. And in the course of one of those engagements in which I was reviewing the current CRM landscape for NYU, um, I met Christine and Ken, the co-founders of UC Innovation and George, the CEO. And, um, you know, I had to, one of my, the, my tasks for this engagement was to actually see what the products were so, and compare them and, you know, ask them a lot of questions. And it was like, oh, that's Salesforce thingy. Um, of course, I'd heard about Salesforce uh, because at, by then Stanford, USC and UCSF had signed with Salesforce. Um, uh, to change their CRM systems. Um, and I was hearing various levels of success or not um, at those institutions. Um, but I got to know Christine Kennan and, uh, and George um, and you know, liked them very much, liked their energy. Uh, Christine especially is passionate about Salesforce. Um, so that was attractive to me. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, you know, was doing my report and George happened to email me and say, hey, can you spend a few minutes and um, talk about you know, XYZ person uh, who I had worked with at Stanford and hired at Santa Clara anyway. And I said, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about this person, but why aren't you, if you have openings, why aren't you talking to me? Because I had made a decision to leave, this where I was intentional, to leave this, the, the consulting firm. And um, I was just looking for other opportunities. And I thought I had told everyone in the world that I was looking for another job. And, uh, and George said, wait a minute, you're looking for a job? And I said, yes. So about a week or two later, we met up at Dreamforce. I spent a couple hours. I thought I was giving them advice on the portal um, that they were developing, you know, and uh, you know, hoping to sell as part of the product. Um, so I did give them some advice, but then it had turned into like an hour-long sell by them <laughs> to me. And the next day, I had an offer in my inbox. Um, and so I, you know, took my time deciding because I had offered an offer from another place and. You know, I said to my husband, I think I'm going to take a chance on this startup. Um, it feels right that the, the passion's there, the people are great. It'd be interesting to work for a, you know, woman-owned, <laughs> you know, firm, uh, yep. you know, especially one of, uh, you know, it's a, where the, you know, Christine and Ken are Asian American. I just thought it'll, I can continue to work remotely, which I discovered I really liked. So that's, so I decided to take that job. Anytime yeah. people ask me about joining early stage companies, um, you know, including um, Evertrue, you know, early on in our endeavor, and even now, it is, um, I often say it's, 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 you should think about it the same way a venture capitalist would. Uh, 
because unlike the venture capitalist who is investing their money, which by the way, isn't even theirs, it's through other investors, yeah. right? You're investing your time, you're investing your life, but for any sort of still, you know, not totally proven established company, you've got to have the same or even a higher degree, I think of, um, of judgment than that, uh, than the venture capitalist. And so when you think about your decision, um, y- you know, you knew the Blackboard community really well, right? Mm-hmm. You knew the Aleutian community really well. Salesforce, um, for all of its might and strength in the broader commercial sector, was sort of the new kid on the block or the underdog yep. in higher ed. And yep. so that didn't phase you. And I'm just curious, without getting you know, two in the weeds, when you, when you looked at the landscape a few years ago, when you were making your decision, or as you did work with, with TSI to map out CRM um, market opportunities and gaps for NYU, for example, what was like the high level view of what you saw at that time that made you feel like um, there was a real opportunity here? Yeah. So I will say I saw an early version of the product, maybe in 20, 17, sometime in 2017. But by the time I saw it again for NYU in 2018, the, um, they had made leaps and bounds. Like the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> this, is, this is, you know, something clearly built just for USC. This is so USC focused. This is, this is not gonna work. You know, this is not gonna be successful. But in the course of the following year, when UC Innovation took the time to productize it, to move the product to make the product into lightning, they made some moves. Now I know what they did. But the, by the time I saw it in 2018, I thought, oh my God, this is completely different. And they get it. And they understand, I mean, they were talking about advancement in the way that proved to me that they understood advancement. Even though they didn't have any experience before they started working on the USC project, they learned quickly. And so I thought, okay, these are smart people who can merge you know, the needs of advancement with the technology of Salesforce and in a way that makes it presentable for those of us who are looking for new, you know, new different technology. So to me, it was the, there was the passion and the commitment to making the product really what um, would be useful for advancement, uh, regardless of the platform, right? I mean, and it turns out obviously, or, you know, maybe not so obviously, but, you know, there's a lot of we can take advantage of a lot of things that Salesforce, you know, the might and strength of Salesforce has to, you know, for our product itself, because we're based on that, that platform, but it was, it was really their commitment to the actual Ascent product and how the changes that they made and the understanding they had that, that what they had was, was work, works fine for one school, but if they wanted to sell it, they needed to make things a little bit more generic. They needed to address some things and they, they started to do that. And actually what I do now is to make that even, to take that even a step further, right? Is to make sure that we, we can cover, you know, X number of cases and so, and how to make it more out of the box and all those kinds of things are the things that we're, we're looking for. But anyway, the, to me, it was that, that whole relevant, you know, revelation of the, that, I don't know, nine months difference that said to me, this is, you know, this is something worth taking a chance on, even though, I wouldn't have, you know, three years ago, four years ago, I wouldn't have said that Salesforce, you know, really Salesforce and advancement, Salesforce. <laughs> so. Love it. And I guess um, maybe one question I would have for you is I feel like part of the opportunity historically, at least has been, or, or one of the challenges I think that everybody would agree in the technology landscape is that higher ed has oftentimes um, felt compelled to go with a one one size fits all o- solution or a all in one solution right. where we'll pick one vendor. It will do all of these things. It might not do all of those things really well, but we can check all the boxes. And that's just sort of been one of the dynamics. I think it's fair to say over the last five years in particular, maybe even a little bit longer, I'd like to think we were part of it, that there really has been some unbundling of, of yeah. the traditional systems, right? Instead of trying to do everything, Let's weave together best-in-class components and ideally um, on top of and and well integrated with whatever the system of record may be. But I still feel this tension around, um, we were even catching up with the the Salesforce uh, advancement customer uh, today. And they were saying, you know, we really, um, we're really struggling with how much of this should be our one-stop shop. 
And when I think about even Evertrue's implementation of Salesforce, part of the reason we like it uh, is because we've been able to integrate so many other software systems with Salesforce. But I do sort of feel this tension even in higher ed where is Salesforce supposed to be a one-stop, is it the next one-stop shop or is it really about the ecosystem? Because depending on who you talk to, there can be different interpretations. So I don't want to speak for Salesforce, but I do know that for our company, while we think that we have the most comprehensive um, advancement solution, we tell every client, but if you find something that works better, we can integrate. Because it, especially if it has, that product has a Salesforce API, it is much easier. I wouldn't say that it's plug and play, but it's much easier to integrate another product. So, you know, events is a perfect example. There are, uh, I don't know, a lot of different event programs out there. And so if, you know, you could use Eventbrite one year, and if you say, no, you know, it's not really working for us, we want to use Cvent instead, nope, not a problem for us to unhook that and to hook it back in, you know, hook it in with, with Cvent and, and still be able to use, you know, Ascend as the, as the base, um, as the CRM. So, and we, and it's also true in our own development, right? When I mean, a lot of things we talk about is, should we be building something or should we just, you know, partner with those who do it better. And so we've made a few decisions like that where, no, this isn't something that we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and we'll partner with those, um, you know, those, those companies that do something better rather than us doing it. And so that we can concentrate on what we do, we can do well. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that is the beauty behind Salesforce and we believe it in our company and that's how what we, we do sell. Now, you know, should, do we, we, would we prefer that you use ours for everything? Yes. But we can see that people don't, but it also allows for us to have some interesting implementations where um, a school will say, okay, we're gonna, um, we, we're gonna sign with you to do uh, gift processing, but we're gonna continue to use our, our old system for prospect management. And then, you know, then they leave it open that they would sign on with project management, but it is a definite second phase, right? Or, you know, a, a future phase of the project. So it does allow for those kinds of things um, because Salesforce is more flexible than I would say some of the older competitors. Fair enough. Um, you all have had some great momentum. I know that you're able to share publicly some of your recent, uh, I don't know, go lives or uh, uh, recently signed partnerships, but who are some of the institutions you're excited about working with right now? Uh, so our latest signing is Johns Hopkins University, um, and that'll allow us to uh, not only build out, but showcase our grateful patient um, ability to, I mean, ability to uh, help them solicit grateful patients. Uh, we've had it all along with uh, USC, but um, we're, you know, it, it's a great opportunity for us because obviously grateful patients for them is a huge part of their business. Um, so we are thrilled to be working with them. Um, but, you know, on the other side, we're, we signed with uh, Ivy Tech, which is a community college system in Indiana, um, the largest one in Indiana. And, uh, you know, so that's a, you know, completely different set of, per of, uh, of challenges, um, but thrilled to be working with them. And then Brandeis, you know, liberal arts in the Northeast. Uh, so, and that, you know, implementation will be, they have structured it in a different way. And so it'll be interesting there. Um, Goal lies we have, uh, we had two in January, um, but uh, we are rapidly working towards uh, one that's uh, due to be in May. I'm not gonna jinx it by saying which school, uh, but we have a goal line in May uh, that we are, we are all working towards. Um, and so, yeah, we're got some pretty good momentum. We. Uh, well, uh, there was a notice of award of another one that uh, we can't make public yet, but um, you know that was uh, that was good, and hopefully it'll continue. I think my, I, I'm going to say I, I think I I might have the chance I took might have been okay. <laughs> Makes me happy. Um, you earned it. And can I just ask? I mean, it is an incredibly tight knit community. You've been very involved with Case. You've been involved. I mean, we've definitely. I had some great uh, experiences at AASP conferences and so forth. Um, who are some of the people that you really count as friends and mentors, either in the advancement services community specifically or the advancement community more broadly? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, <laughs> so the group of people that I became very close to uh, 
while I was uh, leading SIAS, I still, we still, we have, still have a group chat together. Um, and so that's Jason Boley, Carrie White, um, Kushal uh, Dasgupta, Mark Lanham, Mary Carol Stark, Jen Schimpbauerman. Um, and, you know, th those people I rely on pretty heavily. Um, I also, you know, and then Tom Chaves is one who brought me in. And so, you know, occasionally with Tom. Um, I talk a lot with Carl Otto at UC Berkeley. Um, we, you know, it just, uh, it's kind of funny. I call him conference husband. He calls me conference wife. Uh, it turns out that we present really well together. Um, and we have very, very different styles, but for some reason we mesh. And so that's when we started calling each other that. So I talked to him quite a bit um, about, you know, things going on. And um, it's a little bit, not tension, but it's kind of funny because of course we would love for Cal to sign on with UC Innovation, because especially given that they have Salesforce already, <clears throat> um, but they're not ready yet. They're, they're gonna finish their campaign first. Um, who else? Um, Shelby Radcliffe at Willamette. Um, I actually, you know, reach out to personally a lot of, you know, for personal kinds of things, uh, career things. Um, well, Sandra Camparo also, she was one of oh, my it. staff people. Um, it's a great group. Mike Riefel, uh, you know. Yeah, so I don't really, I mean, Mike and I, yeah. you know, when we're together in person, we chat yeah. all the time, but I, I have to say, I don't have a, I don't have a cell phone number. If Got I have it. a cell phone number, watch Fair out. <laughs> watch out. As you should watch know. Out. I, I learned that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay. Well, I want to be sensitive of time. Tell me about the cat's meow. Oh, so yeah, it's a all volunteer uh, cat transport organization. We transport cats across the country uh, using a leg to leg transport. So a lot of this happens with dogs and other animals too, uh, but we concentrate only on cats. So every volunteer drives an hour, hour and a half and they hand off the cat to another person. Um, and we get to transport the cats all over the place. Um, sometimes I fly them, right? Because I was flying, you know, I fly a lot or I used to. Um, to again soon. Uh, so I will fly the cat as well. But um, it's, you know, people fall in love with cats all over the place, or, you know, there's a family situation where someone passes on and needs to get the, you know, counter to a relative. That's why people need, people say, you know, why don't you just adopt locally? Sometimes, you know, you want a particular kind of cat and you fall in love with them. And so, you know, as long as the you know, adopting out organization is comfortable adopting out of state or, you know, far away, then we're happy to transport and it's free. Do you, um, do you have any uh, particularly like memorable or emotional experiences in that work that stand out? Yeah. So there was one where, uh, um, <laughs> so this is, it blends my sports too. I, at the time it was not my organization. I was volunteering for another organization that did the same thing. Um, but I was in Tempe, Arizona for the Pac-12 championship game, football, and um, the transport that was going up the state of California had to be stopped the day before because it snowed on I-5. And so <laughs> I got a call from the coordinator and said, hey, I see that you're in, in Tempe. Could you transport these cats to, you know, and keep them at your place until we can restart the transport? They were going up to Oregon. Um, or you know, Oregon or Montana, I don't remember now. Can you, you know, can you, can you basically do this? I went, uh, okay. So, sat, you know, we were planning to do a 14 hour drive on Sunday to begin with, to get home from the championship. And so, I mean, there were three of us in the car. So we had to rearrange the car to get this huge crate of three kittens in the car. And I ended up having them for two weeks. And I, when I had to hand off the cats to the next driver two weekends away, I cried for 30 minutes driving back because I had just gotten so attached to them, which is why I don't foster, by the way. I totally believe in fostering, but I would be a foster fail every time because I guess- I love it. <laughs> do you, how many cats do you think you've been a part of transporting? Personally? Yeah. 50, 75? Wow. All right. Our organization had, had, has done uh, in the four years, and remember we've been off a year, we transferred over 250. Love it. Sometimes it's multiple, um, so those are easier. <laughs> like three kittens you are you are a jack of many trades i um <laughs> i uh i also just have to comment for those who've been listening along my 
RV journey. When you pack up a family of five into an RV for 10 months at 11,000 miles, you've got to be pretty judicious about what you pack and you get a very small set of, uh, of everything. And one of the things that made the cut was the unbelievable blanket that Carolyn knitted for our baby uh, Odin when he was born. Uh, and that thing is a hot commodity in the RV. Everybody <laughs> wants that blanket. So uh, I'm glad you, you are uh, <laughs> talented and generous on many fronts. Um, and it has been really fun uh, catching up with you um, today. I guess when you think about what you're excited about coming, hopefully, um, you know, out of COVID here and, uh, you know, into this new reality in mid 2021, what are you most excited about professionally, personally? Um, you know, what, what's on your 2021 bucket list? Uh, to give everyone I love a hug. Well I mean, said. That's probably, I'm a hugger to begin with. So to not be able to do that has been really, really hard. Um, I'm excited for in-person conferences. I don't think it'll happen this year. I think it'll start next year. Um, I think that'll be, you know, great. Just reconnecting. I mean, the connections that you make at a conference, as you know, <clears throat> are sometimes, you know, life altering. Um, I, I, th I, th I think it's fair to say it would have been really hard to engineer us meeting via Zoom. Yeah, that whole experience, right? I mean, my ability to walk away from your first pitch and what it just it would be it would have been completely different. So uh, I totally miss that and just the you know the after hours <laughs> activities that to me that's where I get to know a lot of people and meet a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, so that that's what I'm, what I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm looking forward to getting back to watching sports um, Love in it. person. Yeah, uh, I'm, I might be going to a hockey game next week, so we'll see. Um, it'll be, the sharks are doing terribly, but, um, you know, still it's hockey and Patrick Marlowe, you know, it might be his last game. So who knows? Carolyn, <laughs> yeah, if, I know if, all uh, our sports. <laughs> if people want to stay in touch with you, I know yeah. you're active on LinkedIn. Is that the best way or, uh, Twitter yeah. or what's your preferred medium? Either way, Twitter is CSC228. I will say that that is, uh, my own, uh, account. It's more political than anything else. So, uh, don't follow me there. Probably LinkedIn is probably better. Uh, C Chang at ucinnovation.com um, or through Brent. <laughs> Love it. Shoot me a text if you want to meet Carolyn. We'll make it happen. Uh, <laughs> you you are a great friend to many and uh, you always have such uh, positive vibes and enthusiasm for this sector that uh, you know changes lives and it changed yours and it's changed mine. And yeah. I know that that's why the UC Innovation team does what you all do and it's why we do what we do. And yeah. Uh, I look forward to continued friendship, collaborations, hugs, after hour conference, uh, you know, hang sessions, you name it, all the above. <laughs> all uh, it's above. great to see you, Carolyn. Thanks for sharing with our, with our audience. Okay. Will do. All right. So Brent signing off from Four Oaks, North, North Carolina. Carolina. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. -bye. Bye.